0: All right, we're back for another edition of Spirit of the Game, Rules of Golf Chat. This is Ed Mate And Lewis Harry. All right, we're excited this month. We got a very special guest. Uh, he's special in a lot of ways, some of which we, we can talk about on air and others we can't. But we got Thomas Pagel, <laughs> Chief Governance Officer. Chief Governance Officer. Let me get that right, not, not uh, go too fast. With the USGA, but uh, that's just the end of the story or the current version. But it all started here in Colorado. Thomas, welcome. And uh, remind, remind those who don't know that you are really a Coloradan. <laughs> Lewis, uh, thanks for having me. I look forward to chatting today. Yes,
1: Colorado, it's home. I'm, I'm a Coloradan. I claim it. We'll always claim it. Um, yeah, you know, it's, I, I think about golf and, and my journey and obviously all the, the good times we had at the CGA and, and frankly, the mentorships and friendships that have continued. Um, you know, growing up in, in Denver, grew up in Littleton. Uh, right next to South Suburban Golf Course, and and I remember my stepdad when I was probably six or seven wanted to take me golfing. And and look, as golfers, we all have stories, um, but this is one that you know I, I reflect on quite often, just because in the position I'm in, I, I pinch myself every day that that I get to do what I do. And frankly, it, it, it's a job. Um, I still can't believe it to this day. But you know, six years old, seven years old, he'd take me out, and we would play the par three at South Suburban. And I'll never forget. He would let me tee up every shot just so I'd have fun. And you just hit the little white ball and chase it. And that became really, uh, uh, my sanctuary as a kid, you know, I would jump the fence, either go play a little three or four hole loop on South suburban and the marshals would just let us keep going. Me and my buddies or, you know, just spend hours on the range as a range rat. Um, so introduced to it at a young age, just fell in love at a young age. And frankly, it's uh, it's just a career that, that I've always been. And I caddied for gosh, probably five years caddied and, and worked the bag room at uh, Glenmore country club. Um, Every summer, I remember thinking, I'm going to get a different job. I'm going to get something that, you know, maybe will help advance me in life. You know, never not knowing my career would be (laughs) golf. But then you think about, I'm in high school, right? I'm getting tips. I'm getting paid well. I get to play golf a couple days a week. I get to meet a bunch of interesting people. And so every year, I'd go back to to Glenmore. And then, uh, yeah, just sort of been lucky enough to stick around ever since.
0: So I I have to say, um, you were six or so. And by the way, you lived right across the street. I mean, you were like literally... Right on. Is that Colorado Boulevard right there? It was. It was right on Colorado Boulevard. And so you, was, can, I would you hop could hop my
1: fence. Yeah, jump the split rail fence, and I was on close to Fourth Green. I would think
0: you'd be a better golfer.
1: Me too. Me too. I'm, st- I'm still, w- I'm still working on it to this day where, you know, my self-taught swing at, uh, I-, I need help at yeah.
0: lots of help. Well, I thought maybe you were too busy calling penalties on your fellow six-year-olds that you were actually learning the <laughs> exactly. game. All right. So you go off to the, we, we're, we're going to get, we want a lot to cover, so we won't spend as much time on your bio as I'd like. So tell us about college and your start at the CGA.
1: Yeah. Proud, uh, proud CSU Ram. Um, you know, another sort of point in my journey where I was fortunate enough uh, my, my senior year to work for the Carter state football team back when we, I'd say we were, we were good, you know, top 25 school coach, the legendary coach Lubick. And frankly, I thought that college football would, would be my path. That was, I was going to work in athletics. Um, in fact, was was offered a graduate assistant position at the time to stay on doing video work for the team. And, and my stepdad, the one who introduced me to the game, passed away very unexpectedly. So I I moved home. I was trying to figure out sort of what to do with my life, where I was going to go and just gravitated back to golf. And I applied for a summer internship, I believe, um, with the CGA and, uh, let's just say that that didn't go too well. <laughs> you, you didn't hire me. So I, I, I wonder I, who I the, to,
0: who is the Sam Bowie of that? Uh, who did we it hire? Was, uh,
1: you know, it was one of those moments. I, I actually remember the rejection letter I put on my refrigerator. It's like one of those motive. <laughs> oh man. I'd love to so, get that. <laughs> so I had, I had nothing else to do. So I, I, I sent your resume again for, uh, when, when the PJ boat ride internship came up the following year and, uh, I don't think your talent pool or your recruiting pool was that deep, and you you uh, you said yes. <laughs> yeah. So started. Well, God, what that was? I guess that was two thousand two. Was a PJ okay. Boeright intern with the CGA, uh, doing a lot of work for Jerry Brown, traveling around the state, installing at the time CDs with the Gin Program, <laughs> and doing a lot of club management support. Um, and and met probably. I mean, Ed, I always tell people you're. Number one mentor influencer in my life as it relates to, to my career, but also had the, the opportunity of meeting Mark Passy, who was on staff at the USG at the time. And I'll never forget that first meeting. He said, Do you know the rules? And I said, well, Yeah, of course I know the rules. And he goes, What's rule one? And I couldn't answer at the time. He said, You really need to learn the rules. And so, um, fortunately, I, I was able to dive in with your support. You, you helped guide me along the journey and just fell in up with the rules. and. I must have done an okay job that internship year because you you hired me full time and I was able to stick around for another seven years.
0: Well, I I do have I do remember where it puts a smile on my face when we do our morning Bible studies on the rules, preparing for the rules exam. And we kind of took the Roger Bannister approach uh, where we said somebody's going to get 100 on this test. One of the four of us, it was me, me, you, Pete. uh, I can't remember just the three. Maybe there was a fourth. And sure enough, you were the one to get that hundred. So I take, I never gotten a hundred, but I helped somebody get a hundred. So <laughs> it made me look good there. All right. So you were here, you you moved your way up the ranks, obviously we're a rising star. Uh, and tell us what, what, how you left the CGA and how you got to where you are now at the, U, at the USGA.
1: Yeah. And, and again, I'm going to, I'm going to go back to Mark Passy. So I, I made two career moves um, after the CGA. The first was, um, a move to the Utah golf association, uh, as their executive director. And I remember you and I had a, a very open conversation and, uh, I don't even know how many years, I guess that was 2008 ish. Um, you weren't going to go anywhere. It was pretty apparent. You weren't going to go anywhere and it's obvious you <laughs> had not yeah. gone anywhere. And, and so if
0: my career was going to advance, you've heard um, the term Peter principle, I'm sure. That's why I'm, I'm right here. <laughs> <laughs> I, th-
1: I think I called you a 42 year old roadblock. So I was assistant <laughs> executive director and that was going to be my ceiling. And so with your encouragement, I jumped over the mountains and thankfully with Mark Passy's support, the Utah golf association, uh, gave, gave a kid from the wrong side of the mountains a shot. Um, and so we moved to Salt Lake, spent two years there, got settled down. Um, you know, I had one kid, my second was on the way. I went back to school to get my MBA from the university of Utah, bought a house. And within a month of buying the house, Mike Davis calls. And he said, Hey, you want to, you want this job. You want to come work for the USGA. Um, and it was at Mark Passy's encouragement, that Mike Davis said had really looked at me as a candidate to come and take over the rules department. And so that was my, my start with the USGA was just director of the rules of golf. Um, and so I came in, that was uh, 2011. Uh, I, I caught the tail end of, of the book preparing for the 2012 rules of golf, you know, three weeks in, and I'm in St. Andrews Scotland meeting with the RNA. And I'm, again, I'm pinching myself going, how is this real? Never been to Scotland, let alone St. Andrews. And I'm in a room full of rules minds, Um, um, debating and talking about the rules of golf. And so served in that role at the USGA for for a number of years. And then in 2018 or so, uh, Mike Davis reorganized the executive team and and was kind enough to to give me the position of chief governance officer, where I now oversee rules of golf, handicapping amateur status, uh, and equipment standards.
0: Well, that's perfect. That brings us up to speed because I want to start the conversation as we dig in here. On uh, 2019, the rules modernization. Uh, tell us how that all came about. Um, so you're you're at um, St. Andrews. You've told me this story, and I, and I just love kind of how it it just kind of. Well, let you take it from there. How this all started.
1: Yeah, I mean, it was really uh, you, you know the, the four year rules cycle. When you you start with the rules, you you find penalties, you find things that don't work. You know, I reflect on our, our old uh, uh, late friend will Nicholson you know I always say in those meetings you know the camel's head is under the tent. you think you're fixing one thing but ultimately you end up breaking something else and you, you do that over a course of 30 years uh, and the rules become really complicated they become there's a lot of nuances we had what 1200 decisions so many case studies within the rules so you think you read the rules you know the rules well you need to know these 1200 case studies to really know the rules it, it became really complicated, especially for a game where where the players are supposed to know the rules and apply penalties to themselves. And so the USG and the RNA decided, let's go through and, and simplify, air quotes, um, the rules of golf. And so we started on a journey where we literally pulled the entire book apart, decisions book and rules book. And I I you know reflect on it as a jigsaw puzzle. We pulled all the pieces out. We looked at all the penalties. We looked at the organization. We looked at everything in the plane of the game. We shaped the puzzle pieces back together. And then Ultimately, what we had was rules modernizations, which came out in 2019. That entire process took us a good six plus years uh, and included a lot of people on both sides of the pond. Uh, yourself included. Pete, was, Pete List was part of that process as well, representing the LPGA at the time. And frankly, it was a lot of fun. It gave you a lot of creative liberty to look at um, the definition of the game. How is the game played? Do the rules that were started in, or written um in 1984, still reflect what the game looks like, you know, in 2019. Um, and we did a lot of good work. I'm super proud of it. And one of the, one of the ways I know we were successful in that, especially as it relates to, to penalties and all these nuanced and difficult decisions, was pre-2019, every weekend, I would get at least one call from the PGA Tour or LPGA Tour. I mean, it was like clockwork. Saturday, Sunday, getting a call, I'd turn on the TV, and sure enough, there's something happening. Uh, I don't get those calls anymore. Now for, they might be calling Craig Winter, who is now our our, our rules mastermind, but um, it is just slowed down dramatically. You're not seeing headlines of rules controversies, and I think we've really got the rules to to a good place. And now we're just in manage mode. So we're still tweaking as we go. We've still done a a, a number of good things with the most recent update in 2023. But that 2019 lift was was huge. Uh, it was a once in a generation type project that I was super proud to be a small part of.
0: So the term modernization—the uh, first time I think I heard that was at one of those rules meetings. Do you like that term, the rules modernization? Is that a is that a term that you acceptable terminology back there in, in Liberty Quarter? I, I,
1: it, yes, I, I do. You know, I remember I, I was sitting in a meeting with uh, a guy named Dave Asnavoy, who's on our team at the time, he's head of marketing. He said, "How do we speak to this publicly?" And it was—is it rules simplification? I'd always pause people on simplification because you're never gonna make the rules super simple, right? Right. You have 30,000 golf courses across the globe, none of which are alike. You have a little white ball that can and will go anywhere. And you need a book that's gonna tell you how to proceed when that ball goes to places that you could never imagine. So it's never gonna be simple. And so what we're really doing is we're just trying to reflect the game today. Like we're modernizing the rules to reflect the game as it's currently played. And so I like it. Um, Oddly enough, you hear the term used in a lot of other respects. Both within our industry and outside our industry, and so um, I think it's I think it's perfect for the project we went through for 2019.
0: Yeah, I think quite an accomplishment. There's a couple things. Um, it was such a fun opportunity, and I really. And so thankful to you for the invitation to be a fly on the wall. And that's really what I was maybe an annoying fly. That's a perfect actually analogy. I didn't even realize until the last meeting, I couldn't make motions. I didn't have a vote. I'm just like a little fly on the wall. Um, but it was really a f- so much fun. And I'd like to think that if nothing else, maybe I uh, uh, caused enough annoyance to, to to add some value, but there's, there's um, there's three things that stand out to me during that process. One the concept of releasing a ball, which was my very first meeting. And Lewis and I have talked about this. And in, in the last podcast we did was about rules of golf. We would change and number somewhere on our list. It wasn't number one was I would eliminate dropping. And when I came into that uh, meeting and I think it was 2015 um, that was very much on the table and the concept that was being, uh, socialized was releasing a ball. So maybe you can fill in a little bit more on how we got to that point. Cause that's when I entered the story, uh, and just releasing was basically placing the ball on the ground with your hands in contact with the ball, the ball in contact with the ground and letting it go. I always described it as if dropping and placing had a baby, it would be a release um, and I thought, oh, that's a pretty interesting compromise, but, uh, maybe you can fill in. So the, the question out of this is, do you think we're going to be dropping or, or placing and eliminate dropping at some point, but start with the release.
1: Yeah. You know, you're bringing back a lot of memories and flashbacks to where we would leave, you know, the meeting rooms and we'd go outside, whether it was here at golf House or even hotels. I mean, I think there are a lot of hotel guests that probably thought we were crazy because we would step outside these conference centers and, you know go find patches of grass with golf balls and and say okay if you drop from here if you placed here what would it look like and we went through every vari- every variation we didn't we didn't go back to dropping you know over your shoulder uh backwards like like we used to uh, back in the day but we looked at every other variation and there were there were really two things that were of greatest importance one being uh let's make this as fast of a process as possible as simple as possible um, um, let's eliminate uh, the redrops where we can, right? Because that was always a big part of the old rules and you, you knew a lot of times you were gonna drop twice and end up placing anyway. So can we minimize those instances? And then the last principle is really, uh, can we retain the randomness of a drop? And I think that was a really important part for a lot of people and, and ultimately why we ended up at the height. Um, a, you're dropping from a shorter height, so we don't get a lot of the double drop. You still see them, but not as often as you did but it retains the randomness. And I think that was really important for a lot of people because anytime you put the ball in your hand and you can just place it, um, there's just uh, you lose the randomness and, and perhaps players could be advantaged in certain scenarios. And I just don't think that folks were quite comfortable with that. Um, when we looked at the release, the randomness aspect still wasn't there because you were either placing or dropping and just letting go with your hand. And yes, the ball could sit down, but um, I think it was a big hurdle for people to get over. And so, I think we've netted out in a good place. Will we get to to placing at some point in the future? Uh, I can't tell you that. I, I I don't have the crystal ball. It's not on our agenda currently. Um, but like you, I'm sure that there will be those that come that uh, uh, really uh, encourage us, challenge us. Frankly, to think about that rule and think if and, and see if there ultimately is a better way. But right now, I, you know, it looked funny at first the knee height, but I think we netted out in a good place, well, and, and, it, it, and it's it, become common and.
0: Yeah. And, it, and it was, uh, you know, this will bring us to the, to- the topic. Uh, one of the topics we want to cover, obviously, is the, uh, the process we're in right now with the notice and comment. But there was a similar notice and comment in March of, I think it was 2018 when the rules were, and there was one inch we were going to drop the ball one, at least one inch. You may have forgotten that. Uh, and then the comment period, I, I, and it just shows that we were open to comment. I say we, those of us who were involved. Um so, um. so again, th- I think that sort of is evidence that the USJ is going to continue to listen uh, when it comes to these notice and comment periods.
1: Yeah, I think you know Ed. It, it is. I think there's a, a misconception which you know I'm, I'm working hard and we're working hard as is the RNA to sort of get people past. There's this there's this view that with the USJ and RNA writing the rules that there's you know five or six uh, uh, you know white males. And blue blazers hiding in some meeting room saying, you know, this is how the game is going to be played. Like pound their fist on the table and say, that's it. That's not the case. Like, was that the case? You know, in the 50s, 60s, I obviously wasn't in the room. I, I don't know, but we're very much more open to, to being like, this is a, a collective deal here. We're an industry. We're, we're a game. We're a sport. We're a global game. We're strong. We're healthy. The game is healthier and stronger when we do all this stuff together. And so rather than us, trying to dictate how the game should be played or what the rules should look like. We really do, um, um, you know, listen. Um, and it starts in the meeting setting itself. You know, we have our, our consulting members, which you know, you were one as the LPGA has represented, which Pete sat in for a while, PGA tour, PGA of America. Um, everybody has a seat at the table, so to speak, to help influence and provide their feedback and perspective. And I think that's what makes our process so helpful, um, in that it, it we are, listening and, and are taking everything to account uh, into account so that we understand the consequences, both intended and unintended about as we make this change to the rules or this change to the equipment, what does it actually look like for the industry and the plan of the game?
0: Right. So I, I alluded to two other things in the 2019 that stand out. Um, one of which is very selfish and you, you might remember this. Uh, the other is, but the less selfish I, I felt that, the guy that deserves so much credit. And I know it's not about it, it. It's a group effort, but Mark Newell was unbelievable. And he Absolutely. is such a humble guy. And and the four people listening to this podcast and hopefully one of them is Mark Newell. <laughs> Cause I got to tell you, can you just talk about Mark Newell's contribution to the 2019 modernization? I think he deserves, he deserves some love. It, it is,
1: um, you know, the, the, the list of, of mentors and people that I've been um, so fortunate to have come through my, my professional life. Mark Newell is um, top of the list right there with you. He is such a special person, such a special man. Uh, he led us through that 2019. I mean, it, he was the one that was really able to, to sit back and understand those perspectives we talked about and um, his ability to draft and his use of, of the written language is unbelievable. So we certainly wouldn't be here w- without him, and then of course he went on with even greater contributions um, following his time as as chairman of the Rules of Golf Committee. Then went on to become our president and and led the organization. So um, special person, and and you know he deserves uh, not some of the credit; he deserves really all of the credit as it relates to twenty nineteen and and getting that out.
0: Yeah, just uh, the drafting of the uh, the it's it's one thing to sit in a meeting and and throw out ideas; another thing to take those ideas crystallize them into the written word and make sure they're they're not going to fall apart. And his ability to do that, um, the plain English approach. Um, he, again, he is, I just was in awe of, of the work he did. And I know there was a lot of others that contributed, but I think Mark in classic Mark form just never took a bow and he'd certainly sh- he certainly sh- should have. The, the last thing for me was my failed attempt to get rid of Stableford as a term. And so I just couldn't, it just, it was a real lesson in what, in the seat you're in to try to come to a consensus on the joint rules committee. And, and you were, you know, starting your point earlier about this, what side of the pond you're on. But I just thought if we are truly modernizing the rules, uh, sorry to soapbox here for a minute. um, And we're trying to encourage uh, people to play a game that's faster, more fun. Stableford is what a great format. The only problem with it is the name. I, I just really bugs me. And it's like, okay, could we call it points? That's what you're doing. You're playing for points. You're not playing for a score. You're playing for points. So I was proud of myself for, I'm sure I had to find a sponsor for my motion since I couldn't make a motion, but we were, we had a consensus that that would be a good idea to to change it to points, or to at least have a parenthetical after stable for to say, also known as points. And that died a quick death, uh, I guess. Um, maybe you can, uh, I never heard the full story. Why was that? Why can't we do that? Uh, that makes no sense to me. I know why, but I'd like you to explain why. <laughs> so, so I
1: need to, to freshen up on my, my history here, but Stableford is actually a term that, that was named after an individual, Dr. Stableford, who invented, uh, who invented the format. And you know, that's one of the things that's really been eye-opening for me, or was eye-opening uh, at least early on, is you know, the fact it is a global game, right. It's oftentimes easy to think about golf, you know, at South suburban or golf within the CGA or golf, you know, just in the U S is the U.S.G.A. But when you step back and you realize how global the game is and culturally, right. How different the game can be, depending on where you are, you go to a place like Australia where stable for just a standard format, like there was a real reluctance of, no, you're not going to change the name of our format. Right. Um, Because it did have this historical context to it. And, you, know, you you think about some of the other terms that were changed. Um, some were not, you know, that's, I remember members of our rules of golf committee saying, well, that's a term of art. You can't change, you know, that, that term of art um, which in some instances we listened to and others we didn't. And then, you know, for those that are really into the rules, you, you think of match play and the push to use tide, right? Every other sport talks in terms of ties, not halves. Um, and that was a big push from our side on the USGA side. But then you think about the historical context of, have and all squared. And there was a, a reluctance to lose that. And so we have the parentheticals now that refer to, you know, all square still and referred to halved. And depending on on where you're refereeing in the, in the world, uh, they, they might advise you to announce it differently. So here in the States, we use Tide. Um, you know, if I'm refereeing a match somewhere else, uh, um, you know, whether it be Australia or the UK, they'll advise you to say all squared. So it's, it's a
2: fascinating process, no doubt. It's yeah. interesting how people hold on to those terms. You know, I remember in, in 2019, when you know we changed to penalty area, you know how many years it took for people to let go of water hazard and lateral water hazard.
0: So oh, they haven't let go yet.
2: And casual, <laughs> and casual water, <laughs> and casual even, water. even in our even our own referees. Was, we were doing our referee training the other day. And someone let an outside agency slip through. You
0: know, <laughs>
1: Literally like- <laughs> and figuratively. <laughs> it, 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 I bet you I still have a jar somewhere in my office where I have to make a donation every time I use water hazard. Casual water is the one that catches me all the time. It's, uh, it's funny. And again, you think about match play. The number of times I've heard people say all tied where they just get themselves. <laughs> so I'm like, What's the term I'm using? It's tied. It's all squared. No, it's just all tied. So it's funny.
0: Yeah. Um, all right. Now we're going to segue now into today and uh, really the topic that we teased and promised our, our our four listeners. Actually, we have a lot more than four. I'm, I'm pleased to report we're almost well into the double digits and it's just getting it's unbelievable. This uh, spirit, of the, by the way, I don't know if you knew this spirit of the game. That's the name of the show yeah. because, you know, I'm a spirit of the gamer. And, and Lewis, thankfully is a, is a letter of the law guy. So I, he holds me in check and he does a really good job of it. I have to tell you. So let's talk it's, about it. Yeah. good tough job, Lewis, but, yeah. but you're, yeah. you're the right person. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Notice and comment. All right. I'm going to soapbox for a minute um, and tell you that I was thrilled to see this announcement. Um, I, I, um, but I would fall on the camp of this took longer than I think it should have. So before we get to my to your response to that, just tell us um, how how we got to this point. Uh, if people are listening and and our listeners are pretty they wouldn't be listening if they weren't pretty well aware of the rules or interested in the rules. But let's start with just the basics. Tell us about um, what led to this and where we are right now with the uh, with the uh, notice and comment on distance.
1: Yeah. And it's, uh, you, you know, you referenced the the, the timeline um, and it is a process and we'll, we'll get into process, but this all started back. Um, I say it started back in 2018. I get people through me all the time. This debate's been happening for a hundred years, right? This discussion about the ball goes too far and you can find articles of Bobby Jones making similar comments in the twenties and thirties. And it's just been something that's nagged our game for quite some time. And so, uh, 2018, um, Mark Newell's urging, um, again, as he was transitioning from the rules to go into his, his role as president said, let's take on a project. So we called it the distance insights project. And our, our objective there was to, to have the most comprehensive review of distance and its impact on the game historically, but then also play it out what that could mean for the game moving forward. And so we took uh, two years um, again, working with the industry, uh, all facets of the industry to to take on that project. And in 2020, we released what we called um, uh, the distance insights report. Um, and we also, it's a, you know, 80 page document. So We also had an executive summary that we call the statement of conclusions that we released at the state same time. And essentially what we said there is, you know, distance has increased, obviously uh, in the game. It continu- we continue to see increases in the game. We can, t- we can debate how much those increases are year over year, depending on what time period you want to look at. But the reality is the ball continue. the distance continues to increase the ball is going further. It's not, All golf ball, all golf club, there are multiple factors, course setup, athleticism, all these things that go into it. Um, But as distance increases, so does the pressure for golf courses to lengthen. And even at the CGA level, I know you all see it where you're looking at some of your your amateur championships, your state championships, and identifying venues can sometimes be difficult. Maybe there are venues you want to go to, but it just can't stand up to. Again, I'm using the term modern game. Uh, And so when we released the Distance Insights report, we said, we're going to come out and initiate the equipment rulemaking procedures. We have very defined procedures that we agreed to with the manufacturing community around, instead of us just coming out and making a change, understanding the impact it has on them, both from an R&D perspective, but also, you know, commercial perspective. And as golfers, it'll have an impact if you make changes to equipment. We start the process by saying, we're going to release an area of interest. And that area of interest is exactly what it sounds like. We're just going to say from an equipment standpoint, we're interested in looking at these equipment rules for these reasons. So in 2020, we said distance report will be followed up by an area of interest. And then COVID hit, the world shut down, uh, and we took a pause on the distance insights report. You know, the game was just trying to figure out how we could get people to, to play without touching a stick or what it meant to not have rakes. And the industry wasn't ready to have uh, what we uh, thought would be a meaningful discussion around distance and potential equipment changes. So take that back up in 2021. 20, uh, and the first area of interest we issued, we literally threw everything at the wall. We said, okay, we want to look at balls, we want to look at clubs, we want to look at tee height we want to look at all these factors from the equipment standpoint that could impact distance. Give us your feedback. Uh, and so we we continued our research, the industry and manufacturers continued their research, and they provided us feedback after a what, seven, eight-month period. We then took all that feedback, and rather than jump to the next step, which we thought was premature, we we issued a further area of interest where we said, okay... We threw 10 things at you last time. Now there are two things we really want to look at. We want to look at um, changes to the golf ball, specifically how we test a golf ball, which we can get into in a minute. Uh, And we also want to look at the golf club, specifically the spring-like effect and and MOI or or how forgiving a club face is. But in looking at the golf club, we suggest that a model local rule is, is there's an understanding that when you start messing with the flexibility of a club face or that MOI, it would really have a disproportional impact on the recreational game. I mean, somebody like me who doesn't have the sweet spot every time I benefit from MOI. Um, and this, this uh, project is not necessarily about making the game harder. And so we said, okay, if we're going to attack the driver, we're not attack. We're going to look at the driver. Um, it would have to be through model local rule. And that opened up another period of, of comment um, in 2022. Um, and one of the things we heard loud and clear as it relates to both, um ball and club was really be concerned about the recreational game right and this was whether you were talking to um our our agas like yourself at the cga whether it was the pga of america whether it was pga professionals at the club level tour players tour leadership they said you know what the game is super healthy right now let's not make the game harder for the recreational golfer because if if they don't hit the ball as far that to them, the perception will be the game is harder, the game is less enjoyable. And there was this real fear over a retraction of the recreational game. And so we took all that feedback and our research related to both club and ball. And and this year took the next step of the equipment rulemaking uh, procedures, which is to issue a a notice of a proposed rule change. And so that's where we are currently, where we came out and we said, you know, the driver, there are some challenges when you start looking at um, spring-like effect and, and MOI some engineering challenges that actually it wouldn't mean a, dri- a model local rule for a driver it would probably trickle down into hybrids and so now instead of having a model local rule for one different club in your bag it's probably closer to three or four um, and that really can't trickle down or have any impact for example at the lead amateur game um, you can't suggest to a college kid or a high school kid that hey in order to play in you know the match play this year you're going to need to go buy four new clubs because we're using this model local rule um, it, it was it was really challenging it doesn't mean We're not going to look at the club moving forward. It just means for the purposes of continuing to advance this project, we've set that to the side. And then we took that feedback about the recreational game and, and frankly not having any impact on, on distance at the recreational level. And we came out with a model local rule for a golf ball. Um, Again, still focused on how we test the golf ball, um, but it would be a model local rule used for, for elite competitions. And now we've put that out to the industry. It's just a proposed rule change. Nothing's final. Uh, and so now we take feedback from manufacturers, from tours, from players, really from any industry stakeholders to share their perspective on what a model local rule for golf golf ball used at the elite level, what that would look like and what that means to
0: them. So I'm going to let Lewis get some of his questions in. And I really only have one um, as it relates to this. And that is um, when you have 81 model local rules, if you have a rule and you have 20 exceptions to a rule. I've always maintained the rule really has been, uh, you know, it's no longer a rule. So this idea that we only have one set of rules, but we have a menu of 81 sort of a la carte items that we can add. Are we really playing the same game? And I've heard this now. It's kind of funny because the same golfers who were critical of the USJ have all of a sudden – Uh, you know, kind of attach themselves to this idea of one game, you know, and they all of a sudden are these purists who believe that USJ has been saying one game forever. And that got criticized. And now the same people who would be the first to criticize the USJ. I think it's so important that we play the same game to our players saying that. So I look at this and say, you know, bifurcation is not a bad thing. Um, And so I would just uh, be remiss if I didn't put you on a little bit of the hot seat here and say, Does the USJ still support the idea of one set of rules? And if so, haven't we gone past the point of no return there with so many different items that you can opt in or uh, opt out of for level of play?
1: Look, it it is um, when I walked through the door 12, 13 years ago, I remember bifurcation was such a, a hot topic, a hot word, and it would almost you know, we, we would get defensive. We'd hear that word and we'd say, no, we're not going to bifurcate the game. A single set of rules. It's the thing that bonds us together. It unifies us. Um, you know, I, I don't think we run from that word anymore. Right. And you can sit here and word play with somebody. You're right. 81 model local rules, 12 of which are, are related to equipment currently. Um, we're providing options for the game. So I'm going to call it options. If somebody wants to call it bifurcation, I'm okay with that. Right. And, and, it is, we've hit that point in the plane of the game in the sport where, um, to have the elite level use a piece of equipment to help manage distance long-term, um, it's the right outcome for the game. At least if that's my personal view. Um, and if somebody wants to call it bifurcation, I'm okay with that. To your point, there are lots of options that already exist within the game. I think we're the only sport, um, where you don't have, um, you know, different options at the, at the elite level. Um, and so this really, again, the the theme of modernization, I think, brings us up with with other sport. Um, And again, our focus is distance on the long end, which is at the elite level. And in order to address this at the elite level not impact the recreational game, which is what we've heard loud and clear, the the only lever to pull here is to go through a model local rule.
0: And I've always maintained you bifurcate. And I, I really appreciate you saying that. It's options. And I'll try to Use that terminology because I think it's a it's a it's accurate and it's uh, in the spirit of modernization. Instead of just clinging, as you said, to this term that divides us of bifurcation, Uh, but it it goes both ways. I mean, not only do we have model local rules for the elite game, we also have model local rules for the less skilled players. And I am a huge fan of the alternative to stroke and distance. I thought that was a very great, outstanding. I th- I think that rule the only problem with that rule is not enough people know it not enough people use it because it is absolutely brilliant and I even mean I even you know would love to see us experiment with it at the elite level and and just I know that's you know most people Lewis is 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 getting sick to his stomach over there <laughs> but I just think it really does accomplish what it was set out to do which is to speed up the game into uh you know um getting, at least that way now if you're playing on a busy public golf course and you lose a golf ball, you can still post a score and feel like you played by the rules. Cause you, you proceeded under that model local rule. So. Uh, uh, Cause it's I, just
2: like the same, we talked about the with that now before the model local rule existed, there was no mechanism. Right. To keep your round going at that point. At least now it's giving you a mechanism in which you can keep your round moving forward and still playing by the rules of golf. Yeah. I mean, that,
1: that was one of those instances and, and this is always important to us, right? Like, you step back and look how is the game being played and the reality is, is recreational golfers were doing that and to your point a lot of them had felt like they weren't playing by the rules well let's bring that let's bring them under the tent and say okay you are playing by the rules you can post your score but it's a great example of how model local rules impact recreational game different than the elite level and and look it also goes outside of of just you know the equipment rules and the playing rules uh, and goes into the playing rules with respect to the elite game as well i mean you think about the new model local rule for failing to sign a scorecard, right? Like that was put into play at request of the professional tours, right? So let's keep the players playing on the weekend, even if they have this scorecard mishap, that's intended for the elite level. That's not going to be used at the club level. So we have these options or these differences that currently exist. And this is just, you know, my local rule for golf ball is just another example.
2: We're going to put that model local rule to the test here this year, because it is on the CGA hard card as of this year. So we're going to put that, failure to sign a scorecard to the test and see how many times it comes in. So, but I, I do want to go back to something you said earlier, Thomas, about, you know, there's 30,000 golf courses across the, the globe and they're all different. And, you know, every golfer gets into different situations across all of them. And I think having those model local rules for all those different golf courses, it just helps the game adapt to all those situations that can come across. Cause like you kind of mentioned before, golf is so different. Cause there's so many options you know, in our playing rules, but it's different because every golf course is different and we don't have a standardized playing field. And so because we don't have a standardized playing field, and we don't have a standardized piece of playing equipment like a basketball or football, I think those options are needed once you start getting into those higher levels of play.
1: Yeah. I mean, you think back to the first 13 rules of golf, 1744, those were 13 local rules for a single course, frankly, for a single competition. And as the rules evolved, every golf course started writing their own rules, uh, until they, until the RNA became the, you know, the first governing body over the rules and they brought some unity together, but every golf course still had their nuances where they needed special rules for themselves. And so the game has gotten obviously much bigger and we've, we've just carried that forward to, to the plane of the game today. Frankly, the fact that we have 81, I think that that's, um, probably sounds like it's, it's a number that's too small when you think about all the golf courses in the playing of the game, but we've. You know, we've we've uh, uh, been disciplined and had rigor and not opened it up to, you know, a, a whole bunch of
0: monologue rules. All right. We're going to keep our promise. So we're, we have about five minutes. So I want to, and there's a, I want to put you on the hot seat with some of my, uh, some, some more famous, some more notable rulings that have occurred on your watch. But before we leave, oh boy. before we leave the topic of the uh, notice and comment. How is it going so far? Are you, is it, I would imagine you got an influx of lots of comments and now it's probably died out. It's like email. If you don't get a reply right away, you probably won't hear back. Uh, what are you hearing? Yeah, what are you he, seeing?
1: Yeah, you know, it is, um, you're, you're absolutely right. The first, especially 48 hours, um, you, you hear a lot. And I would say the feedback we've, we've received to, to date, has been about 50-50, right? For as many emails as you get saying, I can't believe you're doing this leave the game alone. You, you get emails of support. And frankly, um, you also have a camp of people that said, finally, you're doing something, but it's not enough. Right. So you have people that are upset. You're doing anything. And the people that are, are voicing support are saying you really need to be doing more. And so we're sort of in that, that Mm -hmm. middle ground. Um, but the feedback's been about as we expected and look, our, our technical team, we have some of the the brightest folks in the industry that work for our equipment standards team led by John Spitzer. Um, they're working with the manufacturers. They're working on what this looks like from a, a ball composition standpoint in order for this model local to, rule to work. They're looking at um, what it would mean to test at a club head speed of a 127 miles an hour, where currently we test at 120. Um, and so it's, it's it's a lot of technical work at the moment. Um, this period takes us through early August. And so we'll continue to have the feedback, um, you know, when, when it ends in August, I expect major manufacturers will provide all their technical review and, and comments. And then we go back into a period where we, we listen, right? So we take all that collective feedback and we try and make a decision that's best for the industry moving forward. Um, as we said, when we came out with the proposal, you know, this is 2026 at the earliest um, we understand R and D cycles. We understand player testing. We understand all the things that go into making a piece of equipment, especially when you're talking about equipment for the elite level. So we don't want to rush this. And so, I know it's frustrating for some that it's taken us this long to get here and it's frustrating for some to hear that, you know, it's 2026 20, at the earliest, but that's the reality of the commitment we've made to the manufacturers through the rulemaking procedures. And I think it's reflective of, of what's required to make a change of such significance.
0: That helps answer why 2026, the R and D cycles that it's, you know, I thought I saw that, well, why wait so long. And, and again, those are the kinds of things you don't necessarily think about is from your couch That you all who have the like you said governance is hard, Uh, so it's not never (laughs) as simple as you might think. So I really you know these two these next two are way too big to cover in five minutes, but they are notable. Uh, The first I noted was Dustin Johnson Oakmont 2016. Um, I really think we have solved this problem now with the modernization. There was a lot of irony in this, and that Mark Newell was the one involved. Uh, We'd already written the rule to change it. And, and again, it was going to, the history books will probably say, yeah, this notable ruling. And if you don't know what we're referring to, this is a Dustin Johnson who uh, was penalized for causing his ball to move um, at Oakmont in the U S open in 2016, went on to win despite the penalty. Um, But again, I think we've solved it with this wonderful change. Is Once your ball gets to the putting green and you get on that glass, that is the speed of a modern green we're going to really work hard not to penalize you, but maybe anything there that stands out as you look back on that scenario and what, what occurred. And, um, you know, uh, I think Mike Davis said it we bogeyed. Um, and I don't know if it was for that one or another one, but, uh, what, what are your recollections of that ruling? So probably, um, one of the most influential
1: days of my life, frankly. Um, it was, it was tough to, to go through at the time. Um, Ultimately it was, it was the right penalty. And I just reflect on that day. So he did have a walking referee and Mark dual, no penalty um, was assessed at the time the ball moved. But as we reviewed it further, cause we, we review broadcast footage um, of all of our major championships. And as we're reviewing the footage, it, it became apparent that he had caused his ball to move and was subject to a one stroke penalty. Usually when you're dealing with video situations like that, you want to give the player the benefit of seeing the video before you penalize them. However, you have the guy leading the, the tournament. It's the final round. Uh, and so we thought he at least had to be put on notice that he was potentially subject to a one stroke penalty. So we did that. Um, and then after we had that conversation, we thought, you know what? he's aware, but you have players that are chasing him that that are, you know, in contention. they should be aware as well. And so let's go let's go inform those players that Dustin might have a one stroke penalty as well. So every decision we made that day was was made with the best intention for the audience. But then as it played out, I reflect on it now. If if I had a do-over, I would just have told him you know, when we met him, I think on the the 10th tee or 11th tee, hey, Dustin, you have a one-stroke penalty added to your card. And if you want to talk later, we can. We didn't take that step because protocol, not just for the USGA, but for the tours was to wait till he came in. So it was um, obviously a, a, a lot of noise. And that's an understatement that came with that. I remember doing television interviews. Uh, with both Fox and the golf channel immediately following. It was tough. Like it was, I, I I remember coming to the office the next week thinking I might be out of a job here. Um, (laughs) and, and a good, good friend and mentor of mine said, you know what, make, make lemonade here. You've you've been dealt lemons, make lemonade and you'll be better for it. And, And truly I am better for it. I learned a lot that day around governance and the rules. Um, and it helped me sort of grow into who I am. So bad situation at the time, very thankful for it now. To your point, I mean, I watch golf now when you see players on the putting green and their ball moves, they just know to put it back. And every time I'm watching that happen, I'm going, gosh, do you remember it was only a few years ago where they'd have to call us in? We'd have a debate. Did you cause it to move or not? Are we going to have a penalty or not? And now it's just all been simplified. It's, you know what, you own that spot, put it back, no penalty. And, uh, that's, that's probably of all the changes, the one I'm most proud of.
0: Yeah, I agree. That's really, um, it's, it's, it's accomplished exactly what it set out to do. All right. So we're speaking of golf balls moving on putting greens. Um, and this one, I have to tell you as a friend, I don't like the outcome. (laughs) I think when you blatantly, uh, violate a rule of golf. You should be disqualified, and of course, and I, I again we'll leave Phil Mickelson and his reputation and you know, all that's occurred since then. But take us back to 2018. Um, I would be remiss. This is just a purely selfish, uh, but I, you know, he intentionally plays a moving ball, and if I personally. Were to say, what's the definition of cheating? It would be intentionally breaking a rule of golf. Not knowing you're going to break the rule and knowing that that outcome's better than if I play the game uh, according to the rules. That to me is the definition of a serious breach. So, um, tell us how you got, how that you arrived at the decision not to disqualify Phil for playing purposely playing a moving ball. Look,
1: like I, I would tell you that that your views of that. Uh, situation and in your view that he should have been disqualified. Um, It's shared by others. And frankly, it was shared by others in the moment as well. And and again, that's one where I'm really proud of the team because we were able to take a calm approach to it and say, look, we have a rule for this. So people might not like the optics. They might not like the outcome, but let's apply the rule here rather than disqualify the player. We had precedent. Uh, John Daly did something similar to US Open at Pinehurst. And so we relied on precedent. We relied on the rule as it was written and, and ultimately make what I believe was the right decision to, um, to, to have a penalty rather than a disqualification. Had he been disqualified, uh, the discussion would have been um, about the USGA and, and our um, um, the, the golf course that day and, and really frustrating the world's best players to the point where they do something and then we go and disqualify them. Um, and I don't think that narrative would have been helpful. And again, frankly, we had uh, a rule to apply. So we applied the rule and just moved on.
0: Yeah, and I think that's a great uh, way to summarize the letter of the law versus the spirit of the game. Because no, I'm serious. I think that the letter, that's what I felt like. There's my One of my favorite quotes is, there's always those eager to profit by the letter of the law to the detriment of the spirit. And um, I really felt that's what Mickelson was guilty of. Uh, you made a very good point there, though. I'd forgotten about... Um, John Daly at Pinehurst, intentionally stopping his ball, thumbing his nose at the USGA, which is exactly what Mickelson was doing. We know that. So, you know, those are, again, those are things that um, it's easy to sit on the couch and have these opinions. And that's why... I'm very glad it's you and not me <laughs> sitting there. So Lois, you uh, know, this is we've accomplished what I hope to accomplish was getting you to do the talking. Because you know me, I like to talk a lot. Any other thoughts you want to get in here at the at the eleventh hour?
2: No, the last thing I was gonna to add to that, just that back to that Shinnecock Hills story you are talking about is you know, in other sports like football or basketball, intentionally breaking the rules might be part of the strategy in those sports you know, like an intentional foul in basketball that may be part of the strategy of stopping the clock late in the game. But there's never a, in, in, in to the Phil Mickelson point where he's intentionally breaking that rule to accomplish something else, there's never a situation where you're going to intentionally break a rule as part of the strategy of the game of golf. And I think because of that, that's what makes the rules of golf really special.
1: I totally agree. It's, uh, it, it, you know, it is a game of integrity, a game where we call it penalties on ourselves. It's not like, you know, when, when you're on the offensive line and, and you're trying to get away with the hold um, golfers don't do that. And I think that's one of the things that really does separate us. And then you talk about the spirit of the game. Uh, I think it's just the thing that makes our game so great. And, you know, funny point about the Phil Mickelson ruling that the referee that was on the hold at the time, because we moved away from walking referees by that point um, was a gentleman named David Bonsell, who was the chairman of the RNA rules of golf committee he frantically called on the radio and said, I'm not sure what happened. Phil just walked off the green and said, I don't know what my score is. Tell me later. And so that's, uh,
0: that's how that <laughs> rolling <kicked> off. <laughs> well, listen, Thomas, it's been awesome. I know how busy you are. So for you to carve out an hour, uh, on your, bring your child to work day, Addison was, uh, there in the background. I'm sure she was probably slipping you some notes to keep you on your uh, P's and Q's, but great seeing okay. you Fun to reminisce. Uh, uh, for all of us here at the Colorado golf association, we are so proud of what you've accomplished. And, and, uh, we claim you, we still claim you as one of ours. So we're glad you do the same. I claim the CGA. Thank you for, uh, every, I mean, it's, thank you for the friendships
1: and, and the mentorship oh, mentorship over the year. I mean, it's been huge. Ed, you particular have been so influential, um, um, in my life, not just in my career, but in my life. And so thank you for that. And, uh, the Colorado's home, the CGA's home. And I'm very proud of that.
0: Awesome. Well, thanks for joining today. We'll, we'll look forward to having you back. Uh, uh, this release is in May. So coming up here in a couple of weeks, we'll be back in June for another Spirit of the Game. Right.
2: Thanks, Thomas.
1: Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Yep.